be intensified as long as people were dying in Ukraine. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. A warm welcome to Tuesday's Money Talk on the 12th of April. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business headlines on Radio 3. The World Bank says Ukraine's economy is set to shrink by almost half this year as a result of the war. The closure of Black Sea shipping from Ukraine has cut off some 90% of the country's grain exports and half of its total exports. Ukraine is the world's biggest exporter of sunflower oil and the shutdown of exports has affected global food prices. The institution forecasts Russia's invasion will cause more economic damage across Eastern Europe and parts of Asia than the coronavirus pandemic. Pakistan's parliament elected opposition lawmaker Shabazz Sharif as the country's new prime minister yesterday. After his appointment, Mr Sharif, who has a reputation as a business-friendly administrator, said he wanted to turn Pakistan into a paradise for investments. He said he would push for the speedy development of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is part of President Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative and a key project his party brought into the country before former Premier Imran Khan came to power in 2000, 2018. Consumer prices on the mainland jumped in March, but producer prices eased. China's consumer price index rose 1.5% year-on-year in March up from 0.9% the previous month. In seasonally adjusted month-on-month terms, prices rose by the fastest pace since last October. And China's credit growth expanded faster than expected in March, while new bank loans jumped in the first quarter and lending hit a record high. Growth of outstanding total social financing, which is a broad measure of credit and liquidity in the economy, accelerated to 10.6% in March from a year earlier and from 10.2% in February. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Sam Verver from Mandarin Capital and Lashar, BBVA Research. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Shares in the US and Europe tumbled following the steep declines in Chinese markets as investors worried that COVID-19 lockdowns in China could exacerbate supply chain problems and weigh on economic growth. The S&P 500 fell 1.7% to 4,413. The Dow retreated 413 points to 34,308. And as that composite declined 2.2% to end the day at 13,412, adding to last week's almost 4% retreat. The Pan-European Stock 600 index dropped 0.6%. Shares of Societe Generale rose 5% after the French bank said it would completely exit Russia and was selling its entire stake in Rossbank and its Russian insurance units to Interos, a conglomerate controlled by metals billionaire Vladimir Potanin. The UK's FTSE 100 fell 0.7%. Hong Kong stocks dived to a near four-week low on Monday. The Hang Seng tumbled 664 points, or 3%, to 21,208. The Hang Seng Tech Index slumped 5.2%, led by shares of Billy Billy, which tumbled over 13%. Shares of Chinese EV maker Neo dropped over 11% in Hong Kong, 
after the company said its vehicle assembly has been suspended since March because of supply chain disruptions in Shanghai, Jinin and Jiangsu, and deliveries will be postponed. The company also said it will hike prices starting from May the 10th due to rising prices of raw materials. Other automakers slid in Hong Kong. Great Wall was down 13%. Xpeng Motors was off 10% and Li Auto was over 8% lower. The Shanghai Composite tumbled 2.6% to drop below the 3,200 mark to 3,167 amid surging COVID-19 cases on the mainland. In Shenzhen, the tech-heavy Chinex was down 4.2%. Chinese oil giant Sinuk will raise up to 32.3 billion yuan, that's about 5.1 billion US dollars, in an IPO in Shanghai. The company was delisted from the New York Stock Exchange in November last year under a Trump-era executive order. The company will sell 2.6 billion shares at 10.8 yuan starting today. And that represents about 5.5% of its total share capital. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil has fallen below $100 to hit the lowest level since mid-March. It settled at $98.48 a barrel as concerns over tighter lockdown restrictions in China added to selling pressure. Gold is a third of a percent firmer at $1,953 an ounce. And bond yields continued their advance ahead of today's Consumer Price Index data from the U.S., the White House warned yesterday it could be an extraordinarily elevated inflation report. The U.S. Treasury 10-year yield rose seven basis points to 2.77%. That's the highest since January 2019. And China's 10-year government bond yield dropped below that of the U.S. for the first time since 2010. The US dollar index extended its gains to its highest close since July 2020. The euro is trading at $1.09. Japanese yen is almost 1% weaker at 125.5. One British pound buys $1.30 and a quarter cents, 10 Hong Kong dollars 21 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.39 in offshore markets. And Bitcoin has dropped below $40,000 for the first time in a month. It's down over 7% in the past 24 hours to $39,400. In Asian stocks that have just opened around the region, in Australia, the SX200 down 0.1%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is off three quarters of a percent. Cosby in South Korea is 0.6% lower. ADRs in New York are pointing to a rise of about 110 points for the Hang Seng at the open, boosted by Chinese gaming stocks, which jumped in the US after the regulator approved a batch of 45 games for monetization. That's the first approval since July 2021. It's 8.10. Let's welcome our guests over in the Queensway studio. We have Sam Favre, Chief Executive Officer at Mandarin Capital. Morning, Sam. Morning, Peter. And also with us is Lashar, Chief Asia Economist at BBVA Research. Morning, Shark. Morning, Peter. Um, let's start with some economic data from the mainland. Consumer prices jumped, but producer prices eased. The CPI rose 1.5% in March, up from 0.9% the previous month. In month-on-month -month terms, prices rose by the fastest pace since last October. Food prices fell 1.5% and pork prices fell 41.4% year-on-year. 
Um, the, the PPI, which measures the prices that factories charge wholesalers for products, expanded at a slower pace of 8.3% last month compared to 8.8% in February. Shark, do you want to kick off? What do you read into this data? Uh, yes, uh, I think uh, now we have seen this uh, P- CPI and PPI. Uh, in fact, both of them are stronger than many people expected, including this uh, PPI. Although compared to uh, February, I will turn this PPI uh, slow a little bit. Uh, but I like to say it shows that uh, uh, this uh, high energy price uh, start to affect the Chinese uh, inflation figures. Uh, because if you look at the component of uh, both CPI and PPI, you will find that uh, these uh, energy-related items are pushing up uh, these uh, kind of the outturns. Uh, looking forward, I think uh, uh, this kind of uh, uh, trend will continue because uh, we don't know how this kind of war is going to stop. We don't know how this uh, energy price will stop rising. But uh, I, I think most people expect that this kind of thing will be through the first half of the year, at least. And mm. then that means uh, uh, the Chinese uh, producers, they use more expensive one, uh, more expensive energy. They will have some kind of the spillover effect to other sectors. They will have this uh, kind of the pass-through to CPI. Uh, mm. And also, not only for energy, also affect this agriculture product that will affect uh, the food price. That's another important component of the Chinese uh, CPI. So I think that that's the trend. It's kind of the structural uh, inflation will continue in China. Sam, I suppose one of the things that's noticeable about this is that although inflation is increasing on the mainland, nowhere near as fast as what we're seeing in some other parts of the world, in Europe and the US. Yeah, that's uh, because the Chinese economy is obviously a lot more self-sufficient. Now, I do agree that these uh, figures were high, but and infl- uh, expectations are also increasing. So you have to be careful, especially about the food prices, because the situation last year with the pork in China was quite specific. And the problem we've seen with this expectation, everybody has been saying it's transitory. And unfortunately, those supply shocks keeps on coming and coming. It's becoming more and more permanent. Mm-hmm. So even if China has been better protected com- compared to inflation with the other countries, I still feel the uh, danger is on the downside and inflation pressure will keep coming up. How, how big a, um, an impact is the war in Ukraine having on food prices? Are we sort of getting close to a, uh, a crisis now? The UN says uh, the Ukraine war has caused a giant leap in global food prices. Well, it's huge because I mentioned sunflower, but you also have Ukraine and Russia being one of the lead exporters in wheat. Mm. So the crisis will affect uh, you know, the smaller countries. And in some of these places, you are definitely close to crisis level when the, you know, food is a huge part of your budget and you have increased 20, 40 percent. Clearly, there will be social unrest and a huge impact. Uh, Shark, is this something we need to look out for? The UN Food Prices Index which tracks the world's most traded food commodities, jumped 13% in March. It's set a monthly record now for the third month in a row. It's up 34% year on year. I think definitely that's a very serious problem. And I agree with Sam that's mainly reflect on some smaller countries. They quite depend on these food imports. Uh, I think even in uh, East Asia, Southeast Asia, there's some country maybe they can feel the pressure. Uh, but generally, uh, I like to say uh, it should be okay for East Asia because uh, uh, we have uh, some uh, rice exporters in the region, Thailand, so uh, Vietnam. 
So that should be okay. And China, they have a, a very high level of reserve compared to other places. But globally, uh, that could uh, create a lot of problems for these uh, emerging uh, poor countries. Yeah. Okay. Um, Sam, we're hearing a lot of comments now from the State Council, from Premier Li Keqiang, about taking extra steps to try and support the economy. One of the things they could do it is by faster credit growth, and we saw those figures uh, yesterday. Credit growth expanded faster than expected in March. New bank loans jumped in the first quarter uh, and hit a, a record high of, um, of 8.34 trillion yuan. That's about $1.3 trillion. Are we going to see more of this? I think they will have to adjust given what's going on in the COVID situation. But the problem short term is injecting money in the economy, whether it's going to be able to be transmissible to the economy, because you know, on one side you're accelerating, on the other side you are slowing down because you are restricting the, the activity, then you really have a problem. So they will need to find a balancing act between mm -hmm. this process. And uh, I guess uh, Shanghai is the testing ground for moving forward. But so far, I think they're still very, very concerned about uh, COVID expansion. Mm. Uh, Shark, what do you make of this uh, credit figures, uh, credit uh, growth of outstanding total social financing up in March to 10.6%? But is it going to work? Is it going to get through to the companies that need it? Uh, I think that definitely uh, if you have a good credit growth, that means uh, you are losing the monetary policy, uh, the authority pushing uh, these banks to lend. Uh, but this only can uh, boost the demand side. Uh, unfortunately, now I think the biggest problem for Chinese economy is on these uh, COVID-19-related policies. Mm. It will have a very strong shocks on the supply side, right? Um, if you compare this year in China back to two years ago in the United States, the United States, they inject a lot of money. <laughs> but they mm. still have a negative growth in that year because they have very strong supply shock. So that's what, what I'm worried about. Uh, I think that even they continue to boost this uh, credit growth, continue to have more fiscal uh, uh, stimulus. Uh, but unfortunately, if you cannot solve these uh, COVID-19 problems, I, I think that the growth is still uh, very, very weak. What do you think the impact is going to be this quarter on the economy of these lockdowns? Uh, you mean this quarter? You mean the second quarter? Well, both. Oh. The, yeah, the first and the second quarter, I suppose. We've okay. Got the... uh, for the first quarter, I think uh, the, the, this kind of the impact hasn't fully uh, materialized. Uh, so uh, I, I think that maybe they will be lower than our previous forecast by uh, 0.2 or 0.3%. Uh, but in the second quarter, we expect uh, the national GDP will be at least 1% uh, lower. It depends how it will evolve because now we are only at the beginning of uh, April. Yeah. Mm. Sam, let me ask you about the markets. Uh, we seem to be seeing um, the beginnings of a big sell-off in pretty well everything, aren't we? US stocks took a tumble. Uh, Hong Kong stocks dived to a four-week low. The Shanghai Composite, uh, that was down 2.6%, back below 3,200. And bonds selling off um, as well. What's going on? Well, I think it's all very much inflation-related. I mean, the bond market has been selling off for a long time now. Mm. It's just the equity market were hanging in thin air for the last month or so, uh, especially in Hong Kong after touching in the low and uh, the, the state intervening. But I think the downtrend is very much intact, and it's going to continue. I mean, obviously, the inflation reports are going to be awful. 
and the uh, central bankers are way way behind the curve so I think the market is not ready for the potential adjustments on the uh, upside for the rates and downside for for the valuation so um, it's pretty uh, I think it's have to be very careful and very selective on the market for the uh, for, see, for, for I mean at least one quarter as you mentioned, I mean, there's been a big sell-off. This sell-off in bonds has been going on for a while now. Actually, global bonds have been selling off for seven straight months. But stocks do seem to have ignored it, maybe until now, despite the very clear warnings that we've had for a while uh, that the Fed is going to get more aggressive in tightening rates and with withdrawing stimulus. Yeah, trends are strong and the habits die, die hard as well. I mean, we've been in a very, very strong bull market for the last 14 years. And fortunately... Uh, perception of risk uh, always have to readjust and it's mm -hmm. slow in the equity market. I think the bond market historically has always been the leading market in terms of, uh, you know, macro adjustments. So that's all the more uh, potentially to, to have to be cautious uh, given what happened on the bond market for the equity markets. Um, Shark, we've got crucial US inflation data coming uh, tonight. Um, how important is this, is this going to be for the Asian economies and Asian markets? Uh, I think that this one quite important because uh, it, it, it will decide whether the United States will hike uh, their interest rate very aggressively or not. But I think now markets, they overpriced the in, okay, the, the very aggressive uh, U.S. way to, do, to deal with this kind of inflation. Mm. Uh, definitely when you have such a hawkish uh, Fed for all these emerging Asia countries, uh, that's not good news because... Uh, that means that their monetary policy uh, need to follow the step of the United States. Maybe China exception is too big, but for other emerging Asia economies, uh, I'm afraid they need to follow the step of the Fed. Yeah. Okay. Sam, I want to ask you a bit about your home country, France. Uh, President Emmanuel Macron and far-right challenger Marie Le Pen are going to be heading for the April 24th presidential election runoff. Should we be preparing for a Marine Le Pen presidency? Well, she's still the outsider there, uh, but again, elections are, you know, they're never won until they are. So I think realistically, Macron is still way ahead. I don't think the markets in Europe are, this, are really priced in the Le Pen victory. I mean, from the analysis of the votes for the first round, I don't think she has such a big reservoir of voters on her side. But uh, there is a possibility. You never know. There's quite, quite a disconstant in, um, well, I guess, uh, everywhere in Europe and in France where in the end, some people might decide to vote against rather than for. Mm. Well, why are so many French voters opting for either the extreme left or the extreme right? 57% in the first round went for one of the extreme left or extreme right candidates. What is it they're upset about? Well, I think there's a lot of political reasons because within the last 10 years and uh, largely due to Macron's policy, he managed to have the traditional parties imploded so really now, if you want to have strong position, whether it's on the right, on the left, you don't have the traditional parties and influence there to actually vote for. So you have to choose more extreme proportion, more extremes candidates. At the same time, the two candidates, which are Le Pen on one side and Mélenchon on the other side, have been to moving more towards the center as well. So there's been mm. a bit of rebalancing of the extreme as well towards more traditional parties and making them more you know, vo uh, available to the, to the masses. Should we fear a Le Pen presidency? Um, 
I think so. I think she's very anti-European. Um, she's very nationalistic. So, for the domestic and European perspective, this would be highly negative. Now, again, it's you know, from a global market's perspective, I don't think it's going to have such much on an impact. Mm. Uh, Charlotte, I know it's a European issue, but if she were to win, it would cause shockwaves across Europe because she's talked in the past about taking France out of the EU. She's anti-NATO. She's expressed her support for President Putin. Um, is it something we should fear out here? Uh, so as an Asian, I think uh, I'm a little bit worried about this uh, kind of situation because, uh, yeah, we know that uh, now uh, the European, they perform uh, with uh, some kind of uh, unity uh, but uh, if uh, uh, we have such a nationalist uh, uh, leader in France, because uh, France is the, he's the core country of uh, of the EU and the Eurozone, mm. so yeah, what's going to happen? How they are going to organize their uh, stance against uh, these external shocks? Uh, for example, this uh, Ukraine war, right? So uh, yeah, I, I'm a little bit worried, but I, I don't know because I'm not uh, insider. <laughs> Maybe Sam mm. is the insider; he knows more than me. Yeah. Sam, she, she's in the past talked about taking France out of the EU. In the campaign this time, she hasn't mentioned this so-called Frexit, but is it something she would still do? I don't think so. I know she's a populist, so she's saying what people want to hear at that time. I mean, even on Ukraine, uh, she's been, uh, you know, moving away from Putin and uh, she has been condemning the war on Ukraine. So I think to some extent she's uh, very pragmatic and uh, it's almost the same once you, you know, you bid for a position and once you're in position your attitude is very very different and uh, i think she's on that side she's very very pragmatic okay well thank you very much that's sam favor chief executive officer at mandarin capital lachard chief asia economist at bbva research you're listening to money talk on rthk radio 3 Coming up to 8.25, on the phone from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Uh, I want to ask you a bit about uh, Japan's reaction uh, to the war in Ukraine. Japan's going to join the EU and G7 in banning uh, Russian coal imports. It's the first time it's uh, targeted the country's uh, energy sector. What, what is Japan's strategy here? Well, I mean, Japan's strategy is really twofold. I mean, one is certainly a strategy of outrage about what's happening in Europe. But I think, um, I think their Prime Minister Kishida is doing his best to remind the world that uh, Japan matters as, a, as an international geopolitical power. And I think that, you know, I think you can argue that he's done that pretty well in the last month. You know, I've been on your show enough times to know that, uh, to, for you to know that I'm pretty critical of most Japanese leaders. But I think that Prime Minister Kishida really has done uh, an interesting job uh, in the last month of essentially reminding the world that Japan can turn the screws as well. Japan matters as the international and geopolitical power. Japan is also uh, welcoming refugees. Not a lot, but it's a symbolic gesture that has made a lot of, uh, you know, has turned a lot of heads mm. and, in and, Tokyo. And also, he wants to get closer to the U.S., doesn't he? He does. He does. Not, you know, now, Prime Minister Abe was very close to Trump. He wasn't close to the U.S., and there is a difference. I think that Prime Minister Kishida, it's not a Biden thing. It's just basically I think that Prime Minister Kishida looks at the neighborhood in which Japan is operating and just realizes that the U.S. alliance is becoming more and more important. And I think when 
you look at the vagaries in which uh, allies like uh, China and, and India, for example, are approaching the Russia situation, I think the Kishida likes the fact that the U.S. opinion or the U.S. take on things uh, is a lot clearer. Mm. What is going to be the impact of banning imports of Russian coal? Because uh, Japan's the world's third largest coal importer after India and China. Yes, I mean, it is going to hurt, absolutely. I mean, Japan, you know, the one benefit Japan has is that inflation is relatively contained at the moment. However, that could change pretty quickly. And, you know, the Bank of Japan has been easing monetary policy very aggressively for years now. So in many ways, the inflation Japan is getting, it's importing inflation from overseas. It's the bad inflation, if you if you will. But I think that, you know, the, the Japanese people are, you know, the Ukraine-Russia war has gotten a lot of attention here, and people are pretty outraged. And so I think that you ask the average Japanese, are you willing to accept slightly higher energy costs, slightly higher food costs? The answer is yes. Mm. And it's got a problem, hasn't it? Because it's got sort of joint ventures with Russia um, in the um, in, in some of its uh, in the Sakhalin Islands. So that could be a problem as well. Exactly. I mean, you know, Prime Minister Abe, one of his, uh, you can argue, his only geopolitical success over eight years was basically a bunch of oil and gas contracts with Russia, but also, you know, negotiating with Putin on these disputed islands. Now, Putin gave Abe nothing. I mean, actually less than zero in terms of the geopolitics. But Japan does have a whole bunch of energy contracts with Russia that wouldn't exist without without Abe's uh, handiwork. And I think that puts Kishida in a very difficult position. Do you undo the biggest geopolitical successes of your predecessor, who still wields great power behind the scenes in Tokyo, or do you go your own way and say no to Russia? So, you know, it puts Kashida in a very interesting place. And, and presumably, if he does pull out, um, it sort of gives the green light for China to move in in its place. Exactly. But I think in many ways, Japan feels like we'd, we'd rather be morally right at the moment than worrying about a few dollars and cents. And I think that this is one of those moments where, frankly, I'm looking at how Prime Minister Modi is handling this in India, and it turns my head a bit. I just mm. This is not about me being an American and looking for Asian countries to back the U.S. I don't really care about the U.S. at the moment. I'm just thinking about how, you know, will India look back at this moment five, ten years from now and think, well, that was wise. I don't mm. think so. Mm. Japanese gas companies, I know they're preparing uh, to look for alternative <clears throat> sources of liquefied natural gas. Uh, so they're turning to Australia, Malaysia, even the US. The problem is Europe's doing exactly the same as well. So they're all going to be in competition, aren't they? This is just going to drive global energy prices even higher. They will be. I mean, I'm trying to focus on, you know, how Japan is probably going to accelerate the, re, uh, the restarting of nuclear power plants. You've had nuclear power plants that have been offline for the most part since the Fukushima crisis in 2011. So you will see a push to restart nuclear power plants. I'm hoping that we do see this kind of resurgence of domestic energy innovation here. I mean, Japan for years has talked about how there's so much potential here for renewable energy mm. development and, you know, for putting some more uh, tech unicorns on the scoreboard, some, you know, some renewable energy unicorns on the scoreboard. I'm hoping that this redoubles efforts to boost innovation here at Japan. But you're right, in the short run, the next you know, year or two, this is going to be a very difficult time for the government. And they're going to have to do a lot of kind of pivoting and a lot of they'll have to pursue a lot of nimble options to keep Japan powered. William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. 
And in Japan right now, the uh, the Nikkei 225 is off about 0.6%. In Australia, the SX200 uh, is pretty well flat. Cosby in South Korea is also lower, off 0.4%. does look like the Hang Seng is going to rebound a little bit, up about 50 points or so uh, at the open. That's it from me. Please do join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for COVID updates with Jim Gould and Ada Wong after the news. The weather forecast, mainly fine, hot during the day, maximum temperature is going to be about 30 degrees, visibility relatively low with a few showers tomorrow, going to become fine on Thursday, but temperatures will be lower during the day over the Easter holidays. Right now the temperature is 25 degrees, 79% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Thank you, Peter. An education concern group has called on the government to provide more rapid COVID test kits to schools. It follows a requirement that all students and staff should test themselves daily when face-to-face classes resume after Easter. Mervyn Chung from the Education Policy Concern Organization says the government's offer of 10 million tests for schools will only be enough for the territory's estimated 800,000 school children for two to three weeks. He also called for more support for lower-income families. We have around 800,000 school children for basic education, so 10 million test kits would only suffice for around two to three weeks. So the government must also be prepared to provide, hopefully for free, additional test kits to schools so that they can be distributed to students, especially those who are hard up in procuring such test tools. Turning overseas, the Austrian Chancellor Karl Nehammer has given a gloomy assessment of his meeting with President Putin, the first by an EU leader since the Russian assault on Ukraine. Chancellor Nehammer told reporters he had no positive impression from his talks at Mr. Putin's residence outside Moscow. I generally have no optimistic impression that I can report to you from this conversation with President Putin. It was not a friendly visit. It was a clear confrontation about the facts of the Ukraine war. This then led to mutual recriminations. The offensive in eastern Ukraine is evidently being prepared on a massive scale. President Biden and the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi have spoken for an hour via video link. The White House described the call as productive, despite the two countries' differing stances towards Moscow. Mr. Biden said one aim of the meeting was to discuss ways to minimize the impact of the conflict in Ukraine. I want to welcome uh, India's humanitarian support for the people of Ukraine who are suffering a horrific assault, including a tragic shelling on a train station last week that killed dozens of innocent children and women and uh, civilians attempting to flee the violence. The United States and India are going to continue our close consultation on how to manage the destabilizing effects of this Russian war. President Biden has announced new rules to crack down on what are known as ghost guns, privately made firearms without serial numbers that are increasingly being used in violent crime in the U.S. Ghost guns are sold in kit form and do not require a license or a background check. Shabazz Sharif has been sworn in as the new Prime Minister of Pakistan. Opposition MPs earlier staged a walkout from Parliament and announced they were resigning en masse in protest against the removal of the former Prime Minister Imran Khan at the weekend. 
And Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi has announced a major gas deal with Algeria, which promises to reduce his country's heavy reliance on Russian imports. Under the deal from this autumn, increased gas supplies will be sent through the Transmed Undersea Pipeline, which links Algeria to Italy via Tunisia. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to COVID Update. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Ada Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we'll be looking ahead to the gradual resumption of face-to-face teaching in schools next week after the Easter holidays. 